Senior executives say they're okay with the latest White House return to the office guidance. The Office of Management and Budget issued the guidance a couple of weeks ago. It emphasizes what it calls organizational health and calls for a lot of data gathering. We get one perspective from the chairman of the Senior Executives Association, Marcus Hill. Mr. Hill, good to have you back. Good morning, Tom. How are you? All right. And so the SEA kind of likes what has come out from the Office of Management and Budget. It seems to offer a way to both telework and get people back in the office if needed. Yes, we were pleased that uh, OMB decided to uh, really emphasize a data-driven approach to determining or assessing uh, uh, agency organizational health and performance. And uh, we're, we're hopeful as they continue to work with agencies to develop their work environment plans that they will literally work closer with agencies and various stakeholders to help develop those plans. So we were definitely pleased that they emphasized a data-driven approach. However, we were not as pleased with their lack of stakeholder engagement up front in developing uh, these plans. So it kind of just came out and then go ahead and go at it type of feeling. Yes, because most of these agencies, Tom, as you know, have been working diligently on these reentry plans for a while since we started migrating back to sort of a pre-pandemic norm. So I think that OMB, in our opinion, sort of reacted based on President Biden's and the Congress's ending of the uh, national emergency uh, responding to the COVID pandemic. Obviously, uh, telework has been a centerpiece of that politically with the desire to return, uh, I think, as many employees back to the workplace as possible. But we just like to encourage OMB and those working on these plans not to necessarily reset to a pre-pandemic mindset, but to take those lessons learned from the pandemic to hopefully expand the use of telework and remote work. And of course, your own federal career was in large measure in law enforcement and law enforcement training. People in federal law enforcement, and there's probably 60 or so units of law enforcement throughout the federal government, they necessarily are on location wherever they happen to be. Those are not office jobs. And do you sense that there's maybe not tension between those that by virtue of the type of work need to be at work, as we classically understand it, and those that can telework because it's all computer type of stuff. You know, we haven't heard that concern from our constituents. I think that most of them understand that there are certain positions that require an in-person presence uh, the majority of the time, but there are a lot of support positions that are um, probably best performed in a telework situation or a remote work situation. And so we're just advocating that OMB and OPM and others uh, within the administration really take an opportunity to um, evaluate the positives as well as those improvement opportunities associated with telework, remote work under the auspices of organizational performance and health and really move us forward because we believe that the pandemic basically accelerated uh, some of these workplace of the future initiatives, which we've had the opportunity to test drive for about three years now. And so I think there are probably lots of studies that are in place that will share the data that will help these agencies make informed decisions. Right. I think the need for remote work also accelerated the technological developments that are needed to support it because they were pretty primitive, some of these tools at the outset. And by a couple of years in and now two or three years later, they're pretty good. Absolutely. And what we're doing today is a demonstration of that. 
Right. Yes, we are on a call by a commercial platform that does video conferencing and reasonably good sound. And you do sound good from your home in a distant state from where I am. And by the way, we are speaking with Marcus Hill. He is chairman of the Senior Executives Association, retired SESer himself. And this idea of organizational health, what does that mean precisely? I mean, there are measures you can look at, like the best places to work rankings and other results in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, how many people leave versus the percentage that stick around. What, in your experience, are good measures of organizational health? That's kind of a nebulous word. Yeah, I think the federal government relies on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey to really gauge organizational health by evaluating the survey results um, that uh, I think they, they conduct that survey on an annual basis. So I think uh, that's a, a great key indicator as it relates to those areas within that survey that draw upon obtaining feedback from the workforce in terms of how they're feeling about certain things, uh, their ability to accomplish the mission, the evaluation of their performance by their supervisors and so forth. So I think that it's definitely great to obviously keep your finger on the pulse of your organizational health because uh, obviously if it's not in good stead, these agencies are at risk of not really being able to accomplish their missions. And I want to make one point. So during the pandemic, obviously we were challenged. Uh, we had to pivot hard to go to this uh, telework and remote work environment. So I'd just like to really highlight the fact that uh, and my understanding is no, no missions fail. None of these agency missions failed as a result of pivoting to a, a more robust telework and, and remote work environment. So, uh, again, we just need to continue to uh, move forward in terms of evaluating those lessons and really applying those things where they make sense to apply. Right. If you look at, say, the SBA, which, you know, is in a little bit of hot water for the amount of pandemic loans that turned out to be fraudulent or will never be paid back. The low end estimate is $60 billion. But that's not a result of having people telework. It's a result of whatever controls they didn't have in place. Just as an example of where telework itself didn't seem to cause any degradation of, of services. Absolutely. And we've heard a, a couple of examples recently uh, from some of our constituents regarding their experience with the Social Security Administration and not necessarily um, uh, being able to access the, the customer support that they feel is relevant in terms of really responding to their claims and so forth. And we don't believe that that's a telework issue. It's a staffing issue. In this case, I think that the technology certainly exists to assist um, with uh, bolstering customer service. But literally, I think this telework remote work would be advantageous to help recruit and retain customer service workers such as those working at the Social Security Administration. And is your sense of who should make these decisions about the levels of telework, who should telework and who needs to be in the office, the questions about organizational health, those will fall to the senior executives in your feeling versus the political appointees who may be gone by the time something is even evaluated for an agency. Absolutely. These career leaders are charged with ensuring the continuity of their agencies uh, as we move through the various uh, political administrations. So they're in the best place to make these decisions. I think that um, by and large, most of them are, if not all of them, are focused on making sure that they can deliver to the American people every day the services that the, the taxpayers are paying for. And again, um, just the magnanimous job these agencies did through the pandemic in terms of being able to sustain their uh, missions 
is commendable. And so my hope moving forward is that the administration, OMB, OPM, you know, really, um, I understand they, they realize that, but take the opportunity to award these leaders by making them an inclusive part of the decision-making up front as it relates to certain memos like the one we just saw released from OMB. That's how you get buy-in, I guess. Marcus Hill is chairman of the Senior Executives Association, also a retired SES member himself. Thanks so much for joining me, as always. Tom, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with the association statement at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. 
know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. 
at the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.